This is A Song from the Heart Beats the Devil Every Time, a podcast that documents the history of children's film and television from 1965 to 1985 through interviews with the creators and participants who brought these projects to life. And I'm your host, Kayla Janice. on the shoulder, kind of apologetic-like, and asked if he could get off, so I let him. What's the matter with him? He's dead, isn't he? Better call an ambulance. In the early 2000s, print collector, programmer, and founder of the legendary but short-lived Lighthouse Cinema in New York's Lower East Side, Dennis Nyback, came to the Alamo Draft House where I worked, to present a show called The Mormon Church Explains It All to You. Dennis had dozens of potential programs of rare educational films and 16mm oddities that he toured around with, but I programmed this show because, frankly, I'd never considered the idea of there being a Mormon cinema. That would prove to be a mistake. Not only is there a lot of Mormon cinema, but in many ways Mormon cinema was hugely advanced when it came to formalized film education. So in that program, Dennis showed about half a dozen films, none of which are the film I'm here to talk about today. Uh, which is a 1974 Brigham Young University production called Cypher in the Snow. That film came to me courtesy of San Francisco programmer Jesse Fix, who visited my own microcinema, Blue Sunshine, in 2011 or 2012 to present an evening of what he liked to refer to as sincere films, ranging from after-school specials to Randall Kleiser's award-winning tearjerker Peach. And what was to me the real cherry on top, which was a Mormon film called Cypher in the Snow, about a kid who suddenly drops dead because no one knows he exists. I don't even know who he is. Right. He was a never seen him before. Hey, somebody call an It was in a recent discussion with Skip Elsheimer of AV Geeks that I realized there really wasn't much in the way of documentation about this film outside of online reviews from people who remembered seeing it in school as kids. And so I started to look around to see who I could find from the film itself. When I first reached out to the film's writer, Carol Lynn Pearson, she was admittedly wary of my motives given the predominance of horror material associated with my name. And I can only hope that the sinful dwarf or beast in heat was not at the front of the Severin Films website when she first decided to check me out. But let me just say that there won't be a single film covered on this podcast that I don't love. I'm not here to approach any of these films with irony, which I think is a lazy way to engage with films. That said, I don't actually see Cypher in the Snow as being completely unconnected to the kinds of films I've written about before. There's such an intense sadness in Cypher in the Snow, not to mention an existential weight you don't often get in kids' films so directly. And though ultimately the film's message is one of hope, it gets very, very dark before finding its way back to a place of optimism. Now, you'll notice that we go off topic a bit here and there, 
That is, if you consider the topic to be the film, Cypher in the Snow. But that's because I realized once I dived into this that I knew next to nothing about Mormon doctrine and culture. I mean, I knew that one of my favorite records is a Mormon concept album, namely The Plan by the Osmonds, but whatever The Plan referred to remained elusive to me until very recently. And so I had a lot of questions. So here we go. telling you, Brother Brigham, it's a revelation from the Lord. It's up to us to work it out. This isn't an easy religion. In the first half of the 20th century, films that were called Mormon films tended to be films about Mormons, not necessarily made by Mormons, and that often did not present Mormons in a positive light. That all started to change when the 20th century Fox epic Brigham Young, starring Tyrone Power, came out in 1940. Brigham Young being the successor to Mormon founder Joseph Smith, following the latter's assassination in 1844. And horror fans will want to note that Joseph Smith is played here by none other than Vincent Price, and his bodyguard, Porter Rockwell, is played by John Carradine, so a couple of horror giants in there. But you could say Mormon cinema was truly born in 1953 when Brigham Young University established a motion picture department all its own, becoming one of the earliest schools to offer a dedicated film production program through which students could get hands-on experience. In 1953, Wetzel Whitaker, better known as Judge, and his brother Scott were animators at Disney. Judge's last project was working on Peter Pan, before he was approached by church elders to come back to Utah to create and oversee a motion picture production unit on campus at BYU. Here's Pete Zerny, the editor of Cypher in the Snow, on those early developments at BYU. The church hired Judge Whitaker away from Walt Disney to start a motion picture production department at BYU. They didn't even have a camera yet. He was really worried, you know, what in the world, how is this ever going to come about? They had given him an office, and the first thing they did is hire a couple of people to help, and they uh, went down to Los Angeles with permission, with a budget, and they bought a camera, some lighting equipment, so they would have something to start with. But that's how basic it was. So as you can see, this was a big leap of faith based on a vision and a calling. And Wetzel Whitaker had no doubt that this was a mission from God to establish a means of widespread communication through film. The first church film premiered at the Salt Lake Tabernacle a year later, in October 1954. And when they started, most of the equipment was outdated, discounted, or donated from other studios. But by the mid-60s, BYU had a robust film unit and one of their early screenwriters, was Carol Lynn Wright, who was not yet Carol Lynn Pearson. Well, I got my master's from BYU in uh, theater. And then I taught school for a year and I traveled for a year and I came back. And then uh, a friend of mine who worked for BYU Motion Pictures said, you know, they need help in the writing department. I'm gonna see if they would be interested in you. So he had me write a little something and uh, they, they liked it, so that's how I got in there. Uh, I, that was, I think, 64. So I, my friend, Dave, took me over to the um, motion picture studio, which was off campus, 
And that, as you know, was, was headed by the two Whitaker brothers. Now, you seem to know Wessel, but we, we always, he, he only was known as Judge to us, okay. Judge Whitaker. I, I had some interaction with Judge, who was the head of it. He wasn't, to my mind, as approachable as Scott, who was over the story department. And he and I became very close friends. I really enjoyed working with him. And we worked together on a number of films. He, he was just a really fine, good-natured, smart person. I liked him a lot. But they had an arm to do uh, educational motion pictures and an arm to do uh, uh, religious films for the church. And so I worked on both of those. And I, uh, one that I remember really well was Mirror, Mirror. I think the subtitle was You and Your Self-Image. And it was just about encouraging kids to look at the good side of their, their abilities and feel better about themselves. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the biggest, lousy nobody of them all? I don't know. Who? Now I am cracking up. Now, don't run for the aspirin, Larry. Everybody knows that mirrors don't talk. Except in Snow White and maybe when somebody needs very much to talk to himself. In 1964, an Idaho teacher and guidance counselor named Jean Miser submitted a story to the NEA Journal, which is National Educational Association Journal, that she claimed was the true story of a tragic incident in her school. It won first prize in the first ever Reader's Digest writing competition, and it became an instant classic. It's a short story, so I'm going to read it here. It's called Cipher in the Snow. It started with tragedy on a biting cold February morning. I was driving behind the Milford Corners bus as I did most snowy mornings on my way to school. It veered and stopped short at the hotel, which it had no business of doing, and I was annoyed as I had to come to an unexpected stop. A boy lurched out of the bus, reeled, stumbled, and collapsed on the snowbank at the curb. The bus driver and I reached him at the same moment. His thin, hollow face was white even against the snow. He's dead, the driver whispered. It didn't register for a minute. I glanced quickly at the scared young faces staring down at us from the school bus. A doctor, quick, I'll phone from the hotel. No use, I tell you, he's dead. The driver looked down at the boy's still form. He never even said he felt bad, he muttered. Just tapped me on the shoulder and said real quiet, I'm sorry, I have to get off at the hotel. That's all, polite and apologizing like. At school, the giggling, shuffling morning noise quieted as news went down the halls. I passed a huddle of girls. Who was it? Who dropped dead on the way to school? I heard one of them half whisper. Don't know his name, some kid from Milford Corners, was the reply. It was like that in the faculty room and the principal's office. I'd appreciate your going out to tell the parents, the principal told me. They haven't a phone. And anyway, somebody from the school should go there in person. I'll cover your classes. Why me? I asked. Wouldn't it be better if you did it? I didn't know the boy, the principal admitted levelly. 
And in last year's sophomore personalities column, I noted that you were listed as his favorite teacher. I drove through the snow and cold down the bad canyon road to the Evans place and thought about the boy, Cliff Evans. His favorite teacher, I thought. He hasn't spoken two words to me in two years. I could see him in my mind's eye, all right, sitting back there in the last seat in my afternoon literature class. He came in the room by himself and left by himself. Cliff Evans, I muttered to myself, a boy who never talked. I thought a minute. A boy who never smiled. I never saw him smile once. The big ranch kitchen was clean and warm. I blurted out my news somehow. Mrs. Evans reached blindly toward a chair. He never said anything about being ailin'. His stepfather snorted. He ain't said nothing about anything since I moved in here. Mrs. Evans pushed a pan to the back of the stove and began to untie her apron. Now hold on, her husband snapped. I got to have breakfast before I go to town. Nothing we can do now anyhow. If Cliff hadn't been so dumb, he'd have told us he didn't feel good. After school, I sat in the office and stared blankly at the records spread out before me. I was to read the file and write the obituary for the school paper. The almost bare sheets mocked the effort. Cliff Evans, white, never legally adopted by stepfather, five young half-brothers and sisters, these meager strands of information and the list of D grades were all the records had to offer. Cliff Evans had silently come in the school door in the mornings and gone out the school door in the evenings, and that was all. He had never belonged to a club, he'd never played on a team, he'd never held an office. As far as I could tell, he had never done one happy, noisy kid thing. He'd never been anybody at all. How do you go about making a boy into a zero? The grade school records showed me. The first and second grade teacher's annotations read, Sweet, shy child timid but eager. Then the third grade note had opened the attack. Some teacher had written in a good firm hand. Cliff won't talk. Uncooperative. Slow learner. The other academic sheep followed with dull, slow-witted, low IQ. They became correct. The boy's IQ score in the ninth grade was listed at 83, but his IQ in the third grade had been 106. The score didn't go under 100 until the seventh grade. Even the shy, timid, sweet children have resilience. It takes time to break them. I stomped to the typewriter and wrote a savage report pointing out what education had done to Cliff Evans. I slapped a copy on the principal's desk and another in the sad, dog-eared file. I banged the typewriter and slammed the file and crashed the door shut, but I didn't feel much better. A little boy kept walking after me, a little boy with a peaked pale face, a skinny body and faded jeans, and big eyes that had looked and searched for a long time and then had become veiled. I could guess how many times he had been chosen last to play sides in a game. How many whispered child conversations had excluded him. How many times he hadn't been asked. I could see and hear the faces that said over and over, you're nothing, Cliff Evans. A child is a believing creature. Cliff undoubtedly believed them. Suddenly it seemed clear to me. When finally there was nothing left at all for Cliff Evans, he collapsed on a snowbank and went away. The doctor might list heart failure as the cause of death, but that wouldn't change my mind. We couldn't find ten students in the school who had known Cliff well enough to attend the funeral as his friends. So the student body, officers, and a committee from the junior class went as a group to the church, being politely sad. I attended the services with them. 
and sat through it with a lump of cold lead in my chest and a big resolve growing through me. I've never forgotten Cliff Evans, nor that resolve. He has been my challenge year after year, class after class. I look for veiled eyes or bodies scrounged into a seat in an alien world. Look, kids, I say silently. I may not do anything else for you this year, but not one of you is going to come out of here as a nobody. I'll work or fight till the bitter end, doing battle with society and the school board, but I won't have one of you coming out of there thinking himself a zero. Most of the time, not always, but most of the time, I've succeeded. In 1973, that story was adapted by Carolyn Pearson into a 21-minute film for BYU, intended to be widely disseminated on 16-millimeter film through the American educational system. Um, Cypher in the Snow, the first I remember was, I don't know if it was Judge or if it was Scott, but sent me the story that Gene Mitzer had written and said, we think there's really something very powerful in this story. And we, they said, we, we, we had a screenplay written by one of the other writers that I think no longer was with them. And we didn't, we didn't feel good about how that screenplay turned out. So we want to ask you to just make your attempt at just turning this little story into a screenplay. I, you know, I, I, I followed the, the story that, was presented as a true story by the, the woman who wrote, who wrote it. I think Cliff was erased, little by little. Family, schoolmates, teachers, everyone reduced him to a zero. Finally, he just went away. Cypher in the Snow was directed by Keith J. Atkinson who participated in a handful of Mormon films in this era, either as a director or an actor, but his biggest role in the Latter-day Saints Church was being its longtime West Coast PR representative, which he may still be, I'm not sure. And the film was shot by Reed Smoot, who shot Keith Merrill's Oscar-winning documentary The Great American Cowboy the same year. And in 1978, he shot The Great Brain, which was the film that helped propel Jimmy Osmond to stardom. Most everyone in Utah remembers 1896 as the year the territory became a state. I remember it as the year the great brain reformed. That's what we called my brother Tom, because he was smarter than every kid in town. We'd all been swindled by Tom at least once, so we should know. Reed Smoot has continued to make Mormon films throughout his career, including The Phone Call, which was also written by Carolyn Pearson. But he's had a parallel career in Hollywood films the whole time, including cult classics like The Wraith with Charlie Sheen, and he's perhaps most celebrated as an IMAX cinematographer. The next credit is surprising, and I have AV geek Skip Alzheimer to thank for pointing it out, but Bruce Kimball plays Cliff's father in the film. Bruce Kimball was an exploitation film staple, appearing in the films of Al Adamson and Bob Cressy and Lee Frost, things like Brain of Blood and Love Camp 7, Chrome and Hot Leather, Chain Gang Women. He's even in The Pink Angels, the bizarre gay biker film. Here he is in a snippet from a personal favorite, the 1974 Art Names movie Snakes, where he plays the brother of large Marge herself, Alice Nunn. Hard day. Here comes little old Miss Pages and Crane. Now, sis, you leave her alone. She's mine. He's been yours since last September and only got you with a pain in the pants. 
So I was wondering, how did this guy end up in Cypher in the Snow? But it appears he was a Mormon. He was married in the Salt Lake Temple in 1950, and in his wife Rani's obituary, it described her as a lifelong Mormon, so I'm assuming that goes for him as well. Even his last name, Kimball, which was a stage name, is the surname of a prominent Mormon pioneer. They would bring people in for the church films, so you will occasionally see familiar faces. One actor who shows up in a few Mormon films is Gordon Jump, who converted to Mormonism in the 1960s and did his time in the LDS films before getting his big break as the big guy on WKRP. Some directors from the church community would go on to work in mainstream television and would do so on account of fellow Mormon Glenn A. Larson, which gave them access to The Hardy Boys, Battlestar Galactica, BJ and the Bear, etc. Did everybody who worked on the films, uh, like the crew, was the crew all Mormon crew normally? The, the films that are part of the religious ceremony that are shown inside the temple. And it's a kind of an educational thing about the progression of the soul. Those are, everybody involved in those had to be Mormon, had to have temple recommends. It was very, very, very tight on those. But for, for the general movies, just the, the regular church films and uh, educational films, they, they brought in whatever they needed. They, they brought in people who were not members of the church. The, the, the Mormon church is a very efficient, centralized place that, that keeps very good hold on all of the branches all over the church. So yeah, these, these movies went everywhere. And the educational ones, I'm not really clear how that distribution happened, but they, they tied into whatever organizations distributed educational films. Yeah. Yeah, because there would be companies like Encyclopedia Britannica, Learning Corporation of America. Um, like there's a whole bunch of these that, you know, you'd have independent production companies making educational films and they would go to those uh, companies that would then make up catalogs and everything to try to sell them to the schools. The film was distributed to schools by Encyclopedia Britannica and did go on to win awards at various educational festivals. And this is a thing that I don't know if it exists anymore, but in the golden age of the classroom film, basically the 30 year period from the launch of Sputnik in 1957 to the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989, because weirdly the educational film boom coincides almost exactly with the Cold War era. Um, there were so many upstarts and budding filmmakers working in that genre that there were film festivals for educational and classroom films. There was an organization called the Council on International Non-Theatrical Events, or CINE, C-I-N-E, and this organization had regional juries of film professionals throughout the U.S., and together they would vote on the best films. Um, and a 1972 statistic shows almost 900 educational films submitted in that year alone. So there were a lot of these films. Um, and the films chosen by the jury are then eligible to be submitted to festivals internationally, which Cypher in the Snow did, playing at festivals in Iran, Spain, Italy, and Finland, among others. Do you remember that study on babies and orphanages? Yeah. They were given all the food and physical care they needed. The mortality rate was incredible. Well-fed babies turned their faces to the wall and died. When the doctors finally caught on, they prescribed along with the food and blankets. A little attention, a little love. Cliff held on for a long time. 
Finally, he just turned his face to the wall, too. Just turned his face to the wall and died. I was very involved in the, the meaning of the story. Uh, and I remember by that time, uh, I, I was married. I, I married at age 20, almost 27. A very good, smart person. So he was very uh, aware of all of the interesting kind of psychological discoveries that were going on at, at that time. And I remember he had Ashley Montague's book called Touching. And I remember reading that in, in which, you know, the little, the little uh, story that I mentioned that I know I took from Montague's book that was well documented about the, the babies in the orphanages after the war. That was a scientifically proven fact, I believe, that uh, the, the babies that were held by nurses survived. And those that were just left alone, the infant mortality rate was much, much, much higher. And Gerald and I had many good conversations about, you know, the meaning of all that. And, how people need to be able to relate to one another and what's missing in our uh, society and all of that. So I remember that was, that was in my mind at the time that I, that I wrote that. When I started making this podcast, a lot of the things, a lot of the films I was choosing and the things I was talking about were, um, you know, going to be very focused on the kind of influence of the 60s counterculture and stuff on children's programming. And I thought that I was like, well, this episode won't really be tied in with that so much. But then after reading your book, Goodbye, I Love You, I felt like, no, there actually is a lot more of that because I was really surprised at how much in the, you know, in the period that you kind of described in the early 70s and stuff, it seems as though you and your husband, Gerald, were doing a lot of seeking kind of like outside of just the normal Mormon teachings, you know, like looking right. at different kinds of books and different spiritualities and stuff. When we were still living in Utah, my husband, Gerald, was maybe one of the first people in Utah to discover the New Age. And so when he, and, and this was at the time that the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi came over here and uh, all of the, the, the military and the Fortune 400 companies and all of, all of this were teaching their people to meditate because it was proven to be a mentally and physically very useful practice. And so Gerald and I became meditators and I am still a meditator. And then also you mentioned that in addition to sort of turning you onto that book touching that you used, that you referenced in Cypher in the Snow, um, that Gerald had brought you like a goddess book at some point that was really important. You. Oh yeah, I remember when he came home from San Francisco one day, just so excited. He said, oh Blossom, look what I found for you. This was in the, the window of a bookstore. And it was when, when God was a woman by Marilyn Stone. And I could hardly believe my eyes. But you know, that was the 70s and these, these books started happening one after the other. So many that I couldn't even keep up with, with all of them. You know, one of the themes that I was born with that I, that I keep doing work on 
is our need to revision the gender of God, whatever God is, or if you don't even believe in God, whatever that thing is that we reference that is the ground of all being. And there's one little tidbit that I remember from when I, I think writing Mirror, Mirror was one of my, the first independent things that I did just by myself. So I, I, I wrote out this story and I gave it to Scott and he said, oh, I forgot to tell you that the leading character in our films has to be a boy because girls will watch boy films and boys will not watch girl films. Hmm. And that really pissed me off because I came into this world a feminist. A lot of people don't understand how you can be a Mormon and a feminist because, you know, they'll talk about the patriarchal quality of the tradition, um, the all male hierarchy. We were swimming in patriarchy all, all the time. In particular, they, they did work against the Equal Rights Amendment. Okay. But they, they figured that the Equal Rights Amendment was kind of a scary thing. And you know, a lot of people did at that time. It was to destroy the family. But can you talk about the difference between, let's say, the doctrine and the kind of public policy of the church and how there is room for feminism, like when you're looking at the original doctrine compared to the policy? Yeah. <laughs> well, I only laugh because the Mormon church is pretty crazy making. And, and the doctrine is even crazy making. Because you, the, the doctrine really does insist that we are all, we're all of us created equal. We are always, we are all of us uh, children of our heavenly father. <laughs> and, and there has been from the very beginning this concept that there is a mother there. But that concept has not been developed. In the 90s, I performed over 300 times a one-woman play that I wrote called Mother Wove the Morning, in which I play 16 women throughout history in search of God the Mother. And I have, in the last uh, year and a half, been writing a collection of poems that's in process of publication right now. It's called Finding Mother God. And it's really the best work I've ever done, I think, about inviting the female face of God back into the family. Because without that balance, we're doing exactly what we're doing now, the, the overdose of masculinity that is running the world. And then, you know, that, that really troublesome doctrine of plural marriage that came into being in the 1800s is a deadly blow to the concept of equality between men and women. So back then, was everybody having plural marriages? No. And th there was never a time when the majority of families were plural families. But the, all of the leadership generally had to be involved in the plural marriage. And those who really had their sights on the top level of the celestial kingdom uh, were taught that this is God's holy form of marriage. How common is it now? 
Well, you see, in the actual Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, that most people think of that as the only one that is the Mormon church. But in, in, in that organization, uh, anybody who actually enters into polygamy is immediately excommunicated. And in, in 1890, polygamy was, well, the, the, the ban on it was there because the Utah couldn't get, uh, in, couldn't become a state in the union unless that happened. But it took a while for that to really catch on and, and be fully, even, even from the top brethren who were under the wire still doing, performing those marriages. But what you're thinking of when you ask about um, polygamy today, uh, you know, there are dozens and dozens of breakoffs from the major Mormon church that are based on that principle. And, and they actually started from an understanding that the brethren were wrong when they gave up polygamy, that that is a, an, an essential part of the restored gospel. Claire, what are you daydreaming about today? Oh, you always got your mind on something else. Claire? You've got to try harder. You know you're the slowest one in the class. Do you want some help after school? Do you want me to have your parents in for a conference? They won't come. Why not? They're getting a divorce. And I mean, one of the things that you added into the film that I don't think is in the original story is like the kid telling his teacher that his parents were getting a divorce and the teacher just like kind of ignoring the kid and not really reading, you know, inquiring further into that. You know, I, I needed a variety of things to show that this young man had a lot of his footing taken away. And, and of course, the family would be even more important than the school. So I had to have family circumstances there, especially, and it's not always the case, you know, that, that, that the mother is a powerless little person as this one seemed to be, and that the, 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 the stepfather was a real jerk which, you know, those, those were exaggerated, but you know, we didn't have much time to develop nuance in, in all of that. So that's just the way that I created the, the family situation. I give that boy everything I could, but he could just never catch on. He wouldn't have been so dumb, he'd have told us he wasn't feeling good. Cliff wasn't dumb. Wasn't dumb? I'm sorry Cliff's dead. And he could never do one thing right, and you know it. And, uh, and I think it, the story is more impactful if, if we empathize that the boy was hungry. He was sort of reaching out, and nobody was there to reach back to him. My poem about frogs by Cliff Evans. I like frogs. They sit on great big logs. They jump real high up to the sky. 
One of the questions I had was about, you know, to what extent Mormon values or priorities were uh, important in in kind of developing the stories or the whatever the approach would be to the stories. Oh, sure. The the Mormon values are are, are just in the air of, of everything that that went on in the in the studio, and of course, in in Cipher in the Snow. Well, the the value of each individual is paramount in in Mormon doctrine, Mormon thinking. Every individual is a child of God. Every individual deserves the best that we can give to them. To you know, to to ignore somebody who is coming to you for help. Oh, we don't do that. We don't do that. It it's it's absolutely fundamental to Mormon thinking that we take care of our sisters and brothers in the church and outside the church. So, so the concept that, that this young boy fell to the cracks in Cypher the Snow is, is, is just a heartbreaking thing. And every Mormon in the world knows that should never be allowed. No matter where you find somebody whose heart is breaking, wherever you find somebody who is in need of attention, you are called to be the person who reaches out and does something to alleviate that pain and to create something better where you saw there was a need. In 1986, Carol Lynn released a memoir called Goodbye, I Love You, a candid and introspective look at her unique relationship with her husband, Gerald Pearson. I, I married a gay man. In 1966, Gerald Pearson and I were married for time and all eternity in the Salt Lake Mormon Temple. And prior to that, he had told me that uh, he had had experience in, with homosexual feelings and some homosexual activity, but that's not who he was. And all we knew was what the church taught us. See, most of us back in the 60s were pretty ignorant about all of this. And, and so, especially through the, the church channels, we understood that if somebody gets off track, and does this, it's just a bad decision. It's just giving in to the darkness and you just repent and find a good woman and get married. So Gerald was very devoted to the church and, and he, he absolutely did love me as best as he possibly could and felt very hopeful that this was just going to take care of everything. And, and we did have a good marriage in, in so many ways. And um, we had four children. Uh, but the first year of our marriage, Gerald realized that what he'd hoped for was not going to happen, that his inner being, his inner 
desires had not shifted. And so eventually we, we really had to confront that and, um, and spent two years in Provo, Utah, where we were living, and then two years in Walnut Creek, California, where we moved to. And I especially wanted to move out of Utah because I thought it was likely that we were going to divorce. And I had become a public person by that time. And I didn't want that to be all over the, the gossip in, in Utah. And I didn't want them to judge Gerald harshly. So anyway, uh, Gerald and I determined finally to, to end the marriage and remain good friends, which we did. And six years after that, um, as Gerald went to move from San Francisco to seek his fortune in relationships and had disappointment after disappointment and said to me once Blossom, if, if I could just find a man like you, I'd be in seventh heaven. So he and I did remain good friends. And uh, in, in a lot of ways, our family was still intact. But um, six years after the, the divorce, um, he died of AIDS. And the, um, the end of his life was spent here in my house, where I was taking care of him at the end. And he and I never, ever had a conversation that I might write our story. But not long after his death, it, it really occurred to me that, that Gerald and I had learned so much together and that I had a position in my church that if I chose to, I could be of uh, value in, in a way that I had never expected. So uh, I did. I was able to get an, an agent and, and who quickly sold the book to Random House. And it, uh, it was a major, major event when that book was published. And I was on Good Morning America and uh, Random House sent me on an eight city tour and I was on all the big shows. I was on Oprah with a panel you know, we were talking last time about the values in Sight from the Snow, and I was asking you whether there were like obvious Mormon values in it. And you were saying that, you know, one of the key things was that you, that you should never neglect an individual, that what had happened to this child being ignored to that extent is something that would never be allowed in the Mormon church. And then reading in the book, there seemed to be like kind of weird mixed messaging that would change around fears about Gerald's coming out as gay in the church, right? Like you, when you first found out about it, you would hear stories about like a Mormon mother who had given her child to, up to foster care or another one that had tried, tried to get her son fired from work or whatever, like all these kind of negative stories. And even the director of Cypher in the Snow, Keith Atkinson, you know, like encouraging Mormon members of the church to like vote against gay marriage and stuff like that. And, you know, so there obviously there were fears around how the church would react to this, but then it seemed like in the book when Gerald is dying and you did tell people about it, it seemed like people really rallied around and were very- Oh, ab absolutely. And I think one of the lines that I wrote in that book was that, that, that Mormons may not understand 
homosexuality, but they understand love. I remember when my publicist at Random House called and told me that um, a Deseret book wanted an advanced copy. And I remember just about losing my breath because I, that, that's the, the big publishing company owned by the Mormon church. And I thought, I'm not ready for this. But then when she called me two weeks later and said, uh, Deseret Book has ordered a thousand copies. And they want to know if you will do some book signings in Salt Lake and in, uh, in the Provo area. And, uh, and I, I truly, I just burst into tears from that phone call and even talking about it. I remember how how emotionally overcome I was to, to realize that this book was going to be so well received in my community. And, and it was, and it, it has saved so many lives and healed so many families. <laughs> who made this film kind of like led me through all these things. I honor you <laughs> for giving so much of your mind and your heart and your time to looking at this, this lovely little historical bit of cinema <laughs> and, and all of the background that, that might have infused itself into that little film. At that moment, I resolve never to forget Cliff Evans. He'll be my challenge from now on. Each September, as I look at the unfamiliar faces, I'll look for veiled eyes in an alien world. I've promised myself I may not do anything else for them, but not one of them is going to come out of my class a nobody, a zero. been listening to a song from the heart beats the devil every time a podcast that looks at kids film and television through interviews with the people who brought these projects to life 
This episode was written and edited by me, Kayla Janice. Special thanks, of course, to Carolyn Pearson. And check out the podcast webpage because I'm going to post a bonus recording there of Carolyn reading the poem Our Mother in the Movies from her new book, Finding Mother God, which is available through all major booksellers, but also through her website, carolynpearson.com, which I encourage you to check out as you can read about this book and all her other books, including Goodbye, I Love You and The Ghost of Eternal Polygamy. I also urge you to check out the book Mormon Feminism, a collection of original writings from the last four decades of feminist movement, edited by Joanna Brooks, Rachel Hunt Steenblick, and Hannah Wheelwright. You can see Cypher in the Snow and Mirror, Mirror in Full on YouTube, and you can see the documentary, A Real Legacy, The History of Filmmaker Judge Whitaker and the BYU Motion Picture Studio on Amazon and Vimeo On Demand, depending on your region. I'd also like to thank Dennis Nyback, Skip Alzheimer, and Jesse Fix, whose programming and archiving work was an inspiration for this episode. This podcast theme song is a musical cue from the Detroit Kids show, Hot Fudge, and additional music for this episode is almost exclusively from Mormon artists The Osmonds and The Clingers. You can see what else I'm up to at my website, kaylajanice.com, which is impossible to spell, so it's going to be hyperlinked in the show notes, and you can go find it there. And see you next time.